Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Romans chapter 9. If you have a digital device, you're probably already there. If you want to follow along on the screen, you may. I'm going to uh, read the whole chapter. Um, I think it's important to hear it in its entirety, in its context. So hear the word of the Lord as I read. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it then depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says... To Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, when my, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and one another of dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called not from uh, the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there 
they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not uh, pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that comes by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. Jeff Gore, who is a physicist, says this. He says, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement. But the opposite of a profound truth may well be another profound truth. Oscar Wilde, who was a playwright, said, the way of paradox is the way of truth. To test reality, we must see it on a tightrope. And then the poet, Jen Pollock Michael said, the enlightenment's turn toward rationality makes us chafe in places of paradox. How can two seemingly contradictory principles be simultaneously true? You see, artists and scientists delight in paradox. But we Christians, we seem to have lost our appetite for paradox. We prefer to live in an either-or world with binary truth. There seems to be no room in the church for both and. No patience for complexity and nuance. And mystery has no place in our postmodern world. Rich Hansen, who attends our church, has written a book. If you uh, can get it on Amazon, it's called Paradox Lost. And he writes it about this idea of how the church has lost mystery because it won't embrace paradox. We sort everything and everyone and every idea into binary categories. Zeros and ones, red and blue us and them, victims and victimizers, good and bad, Javert's and Jean Valjean's. And the chief reason we do this is because there's an undercurrent of anger and fear that pervades our current cultural moment. We're afraid. Today, I just want to make a plea for the blessings of paradox in a binary world. I believe paradox is an essential to the Christian faith. For us to understand what God is doing in the world, we must embrace the both and, and not the either or. In our text, we see four such paradoxes 
as we try to understand why uh, Paul's mood has changed, why things have turned after such a glorious passage at the end of chapter 8, we now turn to sorrow. And that's the way the first paradox brings us. And that is the joy of our salvation produces a sorrow for the lost. If we understand what God has done for us, it produces in us a sorrow for those who have not yet believed, who have not yet heard. We saw last week, if you were here, that Romans 8 puts forward two questions and answers both of them. Am I loved? Paul answers it in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? And then he asks the second question. If I am love, will love stay? His answer to that is, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All Paul is doing is agreeing with the psalmist who says, for God, I will love you with an everlasting love. But now the very opening words of chapter 9 changes the mood from joy to sorrow. Why the mood change? Why the profound sorrow overshadowing the unspeakable joy? Something has gone horribly wrong. Paul's own people, his kinsmen, the Jews, have largely rejected Jesus as the Savior of the world. And unless we see Paul's dilemma, we won't understand his profound sorrow. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Sorrow is casting its long shadow over Paul's joy for God's forever love. And that's the first paradox that the more we appreciate, the more we understand, the deeper we go in our salvation, in our embrace of God's forever love, the more sorrow we will feel for those who are not yet saved. The deeper your joy and gratitude for what God has done for you, the greater your sorrow you will experience for your friends and family who have not yet believed. That is Paul's reflection on Romans 8 compels him to offer his own soul in exchange for the souls of his own kinsmen. The only question before the house is, is that have you ever felt that paradox? That both and great joy, unspeakable, joy and great profound sorrow, all because your growing in grace makes you see those who don't know grace, hear grace, receive grace, embrace grace. 
But you and I, we don't, we don't grieve without hope because God is still at work. You one way I know that God has not brought everyone who will ever call upon his name into the church yet is because we're still here. You want evidence that God has not done, is not done with Annapolis or the United States or our world is because we're still here. We are the outpost of his kingdom where we have received the gospel and are now compelled to what? Give the gospel. Which brings us to the second paradox of this passage. God is absolutely sovereign, but man is completely responsible. I know that sounds like diametrically opposed truths, but the reality of paradox is that sometimes the opposite of a profound truth is just another profound truth. God chose Israel to be his people for the world. But by and large, they have rejected Jesus at the time of Paul's writing, and even to this day, the Savior of the world. Does this mean in any way that God has failed, that God's promise has failed? That's what this whole section of verses 6 through 13 are explaining to us, the reader, and to the Jews, and to the Gentiles that are receiving it and hearing it for the very first time, that though God is absolutely sovereign to save, It is man's responsibility alone for failing to believe. Both can be true. The only explanation that we would be saved, and the way Paul puts it in this text, is that the Gentiles who had nothing believe. They weren't even pursuing righteousness, and yet they now have it by faith. And the Jews who had everything thought that righteousness could come by works rather than by faith. How do you explain that? Only way to explain it is the Gentiles believe because God is sovereign and the Jews fail to believe because they chose not to believe. The way Paul puts it in verse 6 is not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. God's promise of salvation was to Israel, but not all those born Jewish are the true Israel is his point. God is not obligated by your DNA. Because you were born in a Presbyterian church does not guarantee that you will be saved. Because you were born in the United States does not make you Christian, a follower of Jesus. And so Paul's summary statement is in verse 13 to this paradox where he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. He says, I choose who I give mercy and have compassion for. But I want you to understand that though your salvation is all a work of me, your rejection of Jesus as the Savior of the world is all you. If anyone had a leg up, it would have been the Jews that had the glory of God. They had the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith. They had the word of God. They had his promises, but they failed to believe because they made a conscious decision not to believe. And that's the second paradox that God has to save us because we cannot save ourselves. 
But man is solely responsible for rejecting Jesus as Savior. Which brings us to this third paradox. The very people that God has chosen to proclaim the gospel failed to believe it. Well, what's the promise? If there's a promise that seems not to be fulfilled, what's that promise? We have to go all the way back to Genesis right after Adam and Eve looked at God and said, this isn't enough. We want to be like you, not just in your image. We want all that you are in us, our way. You thought it was Burger King who came up with that slogan. It was Adam and Eve. We want it our way. And so in Genesis 3.15, as he's doling out the curses of the fall, the consequences of sin, he gives hope. He doesn't leave them without hope. He says to them, the seed of the woman, that heel is going to be bruised by the seed of the serpent. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's poetry. Poetry in the sense of it describes history, but it's given to us in a poetic language of, okay, seed, singular, you can't see that in the English, but seed can be plural or uh, singular in the original language. And so here we have to look at it and we see that he's talking about a singular child of man is going to come along and that child is going to make everything right again. That child, that one man, so much so that when Eve goes to to name her children, she thinks that it's the one. Even when, when, when Cain kills Abel and Seth shows up, she says, I have another man. What's not translated there because it's awkward is I have another the man. She's not thinking I have a male child. She thinks she's got the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And every woman after her that had a son said the same thing. I have the man. And one way you can trace the entire Old Testament is just follow the seed. From, From each of the generations will produce a seed until Jesus shows up. From a singular family comes Jesus. But not just a singular family, but a singular nation. Because when Abraham shows up in in Genesis 12, his name is Abram at the time, which just means father, but he has no children. And, And so God gives him a promise that from you, your descendants, that word descendants is the same word seed, from you is gonna come descendants so numerous that you can't even count them. It'll be like the stars in the heavens or the sand at the seashore and that through them, all the nations are going to be blessed. This was Israel's calling to not only guard the gospel, but to give the gospel. You see, they put all these hedges and all these protections and reality, those weren't supposed to be there. They were supposed to go. Yes, they guarded, but they did not give. The Jews rejected the purpose for which God had raised them up and blessed them to be and to do. 
Therefore, Paul turns to the illustration of the clay and the potter in verse 21. Because they did not accept their purpose, they failed to understand the promise. The promise would be too small to merely save a single nation out of this world. But he's going to save a nation made up of people from every nation. And the promise had Israel taking that gospel to the nations. Instead of rejecting the Gentiles, they were supposed to engage with the Gentiles. They were to befriend. They were to share. They were to give their lives away. Does this sound familiar? It should. Because it has become the plight of the church. The very people chosen to proclaim the gospel failed to believe the gospel. Yes, we are to guard the gospel. First Timothy clearly says, Paul talks to his son in the faith, guard the gospel. But in the very next chapter, he says, give the gospel. What you have heard from me in the presence of these witnesses, what? Give to faithful men who will what? Give it also away. The definition of faithfulness is not just guarding, but giving. Giving what? Paul begins our letter by, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to the Jews and to the Greeks. For in this gospel, the what? The righteousness of God is being revealed and is received by faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the only power to change a heart is the gospel? It's not you. It's not our church. It's not the presentation. It's not the music. The only thing that converts the soul is the gospel. Do you believe that? Then why are we not sharing it? I wonder if we could say, I'm not ashamed. Matthew 28, Jesus' last command to the church. All authority has been given unto me. I need you to go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you, for lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God has commissioned you as a follower of Jesus to take the gospel to the nations? One of the great things about living in the United States is the nations is coming here. If we will learn to embrace the immigrant, it is a way to reach the nations. This is the third paradox. The very people who are called to proclaim the gospel, failed to believe the gospel. The last one that we'll look at before we go to the Lord's Supper is before we can be called my people, we must first hear, you're not my people. Paul is referring to Hosea in verse 25. He's talking about the story. It's in the opening chapter of Hosea. Hosea is a a single bachelor, uh, a prophet of Israel. And, and God comes to him and he says, I, I want you to begin to teach. I, I want you to begin to show the story of Israel. And here's how I want you to do it. I want you to marry the town prostitute. And she's not going to love you. 
In fact, she's going to leave you, but I want you to pursue her because you are reflecting what I am doing with Israel, pursuing my adulterous people. And then they start having children and and we're not even sure they're Hosea's children, but he has interesting names for them. And one of them he calls, you're not my people. You imagine playing on the playground and you introduce yourself to your friends. Who are you? I'm not God's people. That doesn't go over well. But then his sister comes up and I'm not loved is her name. And then another one is I don't have any mercy. Can you imagine as they are taunted on the playground for their unusual names? This is Israel's story that God has chosen them to believe the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to give it away, and yet they don't believe it. And so Paul's telling the story of how God is going to bring them back in chapters 9, 10, and 11. There are two things that I think the church, Protestant church, errs in. One error is with Mary. That is, some in the, in the Catholic church make way too much of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Protestants, we make too little of her when the Holy Spirit comes and says, she is blessed among all women in the history of the world. The other mistake I think we make is in this area with Israel. That is, on one end, you've got people who say they're nothing. They were something at one time, but God has rejected them, and so there's no plan for them. And way on the other end, they're everything. And so let's don't ever criticize Israel. Let's don't ever criticize the Jews for what they're doing. And so those are the two extremes when, when in reality is they're not God's people, but he intends to make them so. We'll see that as the chapters uh, 10 and 11 unfold. Even their rebellion and rejection cannot separate them from God's love. Paul is telling them that they are not God's people so that what? That they might become God's people. This is the paradigm of salvation. Before we can be called my people, we must first hear we are not his people. Everyone in this room who is part, who are part of the people of God, at some point you are not part of the people of God. Paul ends with these two stones. He says, Jesus is really like two rocks. For some who, who have been given the gospel, reject it, Jesus is a stumbling stone. He's something to stumble over. And for a while, the Jews will stumble over the Savior of the world. But at some point, because he's also a foundational stone, a cornerstone, it is what they will turn toward for salvation. And so I ask you this morning as we begin to move toward the Lord's Supper, where are you? Do you see Jesus as a stumbling stone, a savior of the world, that he is offering you the gospel and you have not yet believed? Or you believe and he's a foundational stone, but you haven't gone deep enough into the joy of your salvation because it hasn't produced in you a sorrow for your family and friends who do not yet believe. The solution to not having appropriate godly sorrow for the unbeliever is not to guilt you, but to remind you of what Christ has done, what God has done for you in Christ Jesus.
You want to motivate somebody to share their faith? Remind them what Jesus has done for them. And I hope that's what Romans 9 has become for you. Instead of this weird 9, 10, and 11 segment of Romans that we were cooking along joyfully and we'll pick up again in chapter 12 where it says, therefore, but to remember that God is faithful to his promises. Because if he breaks his one promise here, where else will he break his promise? And God is faithful. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Romans 9 that encourages us, builds us, causes us uh, to, for some to be converted and others to be encouraged, to be convicted, to create a godly sorrow for those who do not yet believe. We pray, Heavenly Father, you encourage us to go out into the world because you have given us the gospel. We believe the gospel. And therefore, we give the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.